Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature hobbits. And stinging jellyfish. But first up, here's the news. ABC reports, it just takes two people to fool the crowd. Why is it that people sometimes blindly cross the road as soon as they see everyone else doing so, without checking that it's safe first? Biologist Dr Ashley Ward of the University of Sydney and his colleagues are looking at the statistics behind collective decision-making. They're seeing if the rules that govern how fish make decisions apply to humans. Their fish study, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, shows that fish are led into danger when just two fish swim towards a predator. Talk about peer group pressure. This is the first such quorum response study in vertebrates. Earlier studies looked at how cockroaches, ants and bees decide whether or not to follow a leader. Ward's team tested what happens when real fish swim with a robot fish that the researchers could move towards a predator. The researchers found that the real fish almost ignored just one robot fish. But when there were two robot fish, the real fish followed them towards the predator. This is why you have a president and a vice president. One individual wasn't enough to lead a group to disaster, but two individuals always were. Now, this may make sense given the chance that two individuals acting like a maverick would seem to be very low, and the researchers present mathematical calculations to show this. They say that if the chance of a single individual acting in an irrational or maverick way is 1 in 10, then the chance of two individuals doing this is one in a hundred, or one in ten squared. Only reacting when you see two makes the chance of doing a stupid thing so much lower, and yet not low enough. The researchers now want to test whether this statistical rule applies to human crowds. When we find ourselves in a large social group, we respond to social cues, such as traffic crossings. A lot of people wait until other people start to cross, and then they start to cross themselves without even checking the lights. The researchers are designing a study to take place in cities including Sydney and Leeds in the UK to test how many pedestrians it takes to lead a crowd across a road against a red light. I hope they get an ethics committee approving this one. Of course, a quorum can lead a crowd to do good things as well as bad. In this case, the members of the quorum are not called mavericks, but leaders. Maybe you should just think for yourself and check the lights anyway. An affordable solar car could hit the market soon. Although it's not a race car like the Tesla Roadster. The National Kaohsiung University of Applied Sciences from Taipei has a market version that will be able to travel up to 70 kilometers per hour just on solar power. A prototype of the two-seater car was inspired by the Apollo, a solar car that was raced at the Australian World Solar Challenge. 
They basically turned their one-seater solar race car, capable speeds of 145 kilometers per hour, into a domestic consumer vehicle capable of 70 kilometers per hour. The speed went down when they added seats for passengers and made it safer. When there's a lack of sunlight, the car runs on a solar charged battery. The car is 250 kilograms, two to three seater that travels up to 70 kilometers an hour and comes with a price tag of new Taipei dollars over 800,000. The car will cost $27,300 Australian. At three meters by one and a half meters, it's easy to park too, like a smart car. The battery can be charged with just a few hours of sunlight, which can power the car for three hours. So it's perfect for city travel. Parts of the car will be made with Nomex honeycomb, a material widely used in aircraft and aerospace components for its high strength, excellent impact and fire resistance as well as its light weight. It's very closely related to Kevlar. Although solar-powered city roamers have already debuted in some European markets, the Made in Taiwan version is half the weight and costs half the price. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. In Flores, Indonesia in 2003, Associate Professor Mike Morwood and a team of about 40 Australian and Indonesian researchers unearthed a remarkably complete skeleton of a small, human-like creature since nicknamed a hobbit. Scientifically known as Homo floresiensis, hobbits were tiny, at about one metre tall, and lived 12 to 95,000 years ago, well within the history of modern humans. Chris Rayberg and Amy Bullen interview Mike to investigate this remarkable discovery. Mike Morwood and colleagues' discovery of Homo floresiensis has been hailed as a breakthrough in our idea of evolution. Given that Homo floresiensis is the smallest human species ever discovered, they outpunch every known human intellectually pound for pound. And I could not have predicted such a discovery in a million years are just two of the comments experts have made on the discovery of this species. To give you a brief idea of how these hobbits fit into our ideas of evolution, we first look at the most popular evolutionary theory, out of Africa. This states that hominoids, Australopithecines in this case, were common in Africa about three to four million years ago. The story is that homus, that is, those we classify as human, evolved out of Africa from Australopithecines in waves out of Africa. As they waved out, they very gradually evolved into the different humans that we have today. Homo habilis were the first humans that evolved from Australopithecines and were here about two and a half to one and a half million years ago. They had different features to their forebears, including larger brains and some different teeth structures. There were some humans, such as Homo neanderthalensis, or Neanderthals, who did not survive the evolutionary process and became extinct. Another descendant, Homo erectus, living about 2 to 0.03 million years ago, again had different structures and brain sizes. Our current species, Homo sapiens, have been around since approximately 0.25 million years ago and have different structures again, including the largest average brain volume. The thing is, as Mike explains, the hobbits that were found in Flores 
have some features that, out of all the hominoid descendants we know of, are most similar to Australopithecines, the earliest hominoids thought to be in Africa, three to four million years ago, before evolving into the Homo genus and spreading out from Africa. We caught up with Mike at Sydney University, just before his public lecture. Initially, um, the first phone call I had was it was a pre-modern human of a, of a child about five years old. And then the next phone call was, this, this isn't a child, the wear and tear on the teeth, the clothes of the sutures and things indicates an adult. And Rocker said it was an adult female, which was later confirmed by people with great, great expertise. Yes, okay? yeah. Peter Brown says an adult woman of about age about 30, based on the wear and the teeth. So immediately we knew we were doing something quite unique. But the hobbits weren't what they had been expecting from their excavation. I mean, we've been looking for this. Previous two years we've been working at the site and we've got um, tantalising hints that there was you know, different hominin species at this site. We've got t- uh, teeth, a, a, a premolar tooth with unusual cusp pattern and distinctive roots. We've got a really small arm bone bottom of the uh, one of our excavations about almost 95,000 years old and it had a peculiar, it was small and it had a peculiar twist to it. One of our Japanese colleagues initially said it was identified as a, the um, arm bone of an orangutan, which wouldn't make any sense on flora, Floris, and it was only later he said, yeah, it's hominid, but unusual. We thought originally that the population that originally colonised the island was probably Homo erectus, and that maybe we were dealing with the, the descendants of our original Homo erectus population. We weren't expecting the... Uh, that line of evolution to come so recently in time, you know, 12,000 years ago. We weren't expecting the, the population to be only a metre tall, mm. with long arms and small brains and, and lots of other primitive characteristics, and we certainly weren't expecting modern evidence for modern humans mm. at that site to only date the last 11,000 years. So we had expected, I mean, it's not like we were working at Liang Bua completely blind and this was totally fortuitous. We'd already worked in the Sewer Basin. Mm. We had sites that almost 900,000 years old to 600,000 years old. Okay. What had happened to that population? We couldn't find that evidence in the Sewer Basin. We, we, the geomorphology is all wrong. So we're specifically digging in Liangua to find out, with, with a lot of luck, maybe we'd get the descendants of that population, and with a lot of luck, maybe we'd find out where modern humans arrived, which we thought was you know, 50,000 years ago. Okay. So we had expectations, but... Uh, some of what we found was not expected. Yeah. Well, they say you create your own luck, so uh, you searched in the right places. <laughs> yeah. These hobbits, or Homo floresiensis, found from 12 to 95,000 years ago, have many different features to Homo erectus, the humans that were supposedly in this area from 10 to 100,000 years ago. In fact, Mike Morwood says that they are consistent with very old humans. For example the 3.2 million-year-old fossil called Lucy. Some of the traits, particularly of the pre-moulds, the, trait, the uh, crowns and the roots uh, are not found in homerectus. They're much more primitive. We don't have any homerectus wrist bones, unfortunately, but things like the pelvis, basically. Stature and brain size, more like a stroke, but the same as Lucy. In recent papers on the wrist bones, wrist bones are very good phylo, well, taxonomic um, indicators. They use wrist bones, you know, for all mammals, you know, whales and everything. Yep. Modern human wrist bones are quite distinctive right, and quite different from apes. Right. The hobbit has wrist bones like Australopithecines and Homo habilis and, and modern apes and, and fossil apes. So, I mean, brain size has been you know, a much talked about issue. Yeah. With such a small brain, people are saying, how could this species develop tools? 
and indeed how could they cross oceans to reach uh, Southeast Asia? Well, Homo habilis had a pretty small brain too, the mainstone artifacts. Okay, I mean, I guess this discovery in some of its implications over, overturns many of the assumptions about you know, the correlation between behavioural complexity and, and brain size. We've yeah. got a, 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 these small individuals, got a small brain, but it has some quite unique characteristics in terms of the development of the frontal lobes and the temporal lobes and other aspects. Overall, the brain looks shaped like Homo erectus brain, but it has these interesting derived characteristics which are, which are unique to that species. How else do you explain a population at the site of Liangua on the island of Flores? The oldest material dates to about 95,000, and the most recent 12,000. Um, wherever you've got diagnostic bits, they all share the same characteristics, particular characteristics we find in, in the skeleton. The foot is very primitive, it's, the foot is very bit long and unique in, in some characteristics. But in terms of the morphology of the um, proximal end of the foot and the arching system, it's 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 very very similar to a Homo habilis. Okay, uh, the body proportions, osteopathy. Uh, you've got very short legs, and the ratio of the of the legs to the arms is exactly the same. It's Lucy. Mm. Implications for when hominids get out of Africa, mm. if they're right, and it's a very early lineage. You're talking about two million or more, or more. Okay, mm. and, and and something at the Homo. Style of this homo transitional phase, somewhere around then. Debbie Argy, one of our colleagues, has done a cladistic analysis, right? and she concludes that Homo thoracensis is a sister taxon to Homo habilis. Not the same species, but they're related and they share a common exclusive ancestor. So, that, one of the implications, there are lots of implications for other islands in the area. We, we have evidence for hominins on the island from al- almost 900,000 years ago. Well, why have you got 900,000 year old stone artifacts? Definitely on Flores. Mike sees islands as the keepers of our hominoid history due to their isolation. How do you get you know, this well species on an island like that? Well, you look at other islands in that area, Sulawesi. The old, earliest, most primitive pig in the world is on Sulawesi. The most primitive bovid on the world is a mini buffalo, a Noah, on Sulawesi. Sulawesi and a couple of other islands in that area, you find Tarsi is a very primitive um, primate. The most primitive couscous in the world is not in Australia, it's on Sulawesi. Mm-hmm. So islands have the potential to retain very primitive lineages long after being lost in adjacent mainland areas. And this appears to have happened with Homo floresiensis. It has some traits indicating, I think, a pre-erectus, pre-erectus origin, mm. which has all sorts of interesting implications for out of Africa. Mm. Um, you know, when did hominids first get out of Africa? It's generally assuming, assume maybe uh, about two million, maybe a little bit less, and something like Homo erectus. Homo erectus has our body proportions, okay? Um, the oldest hominid site different with skeletal material outside uh, Africa is Dimonisi. Okay, they're small, mm. okay, but they're bigger than they're bigger than Homo thoracensis. They have bigger brains, bigger stature, normal body proportions. The only hominid species outside Africa with the primitive body proportions is Homo thoracensis. And you've got to come up with some pretty imaginative uh, <laughs> pathologies or to, to, to explain what, why you get this. Uh, mosaic of very, very primitive traits in the species. But there are some people who do come up with what Mike terms pretty imaginative pathologies to explain his findings. In particular, some critics claim that the hobbits were microcephalenic. Mike disagrees with this because he argues that microcephalenic hominoids might explain their size, but would not explain their primitive features, as he discussed earlier. I think the time is rapidly drawing to a close when critics with their unsupported claims 
will be listened to anymore by the media. I don't think there will be much more talk about microcephalic modern humans yeah, with, from um, now on. With diseases or... With diseases of the week or whatever. It was always a non-starter, given, given the number of individuals we have, a minimum of 12. We've got 12, OK. 12. Um, and given the, the range of, of, of traits, some of them are quite unique, and some of them are very primitive, and some of them are quite advanced. You have this yeah, unusual mosaic... Of morphological traits. Mike is working with a lot of colleagues to further analyse the data, and the interest in the hobbits continues to grow and open new opportunities for study. We have 13 papers at the moment in the Journal of Human Evolution on the on the fauna, on the stone artefacts, on the geochronology, on the geomorphology, on the history of work at the site, and on the uh, hominin remains. So we've got people like paleontologists like Peter Brown and Bill Jungers, Susan Larson, Hissar Barber from Japan. Debbie argue a lot of people are studying different aspects of the material. It's been five years or so since the, the discovery of the Hobbit. How have those five years been for you? The last three and a half years, pretty full on. I'm getting invited, well, members of the team actually, are getting invited to give public lectures and be keynote addresses all around the world. So the future for you then, um, in the next year or two, is a lot of travelling backwards and forwards? To these dig sites? Another major excavation at Lianbua in July, August, two months, in the part of the site that yielded most of the hot Gert and colleagues are working on Timor and got some interesting results which we can't discuss here at this stage. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and so your team just keeps growing and, and there's more and more sites that you're heading oh, out to with this discovery? Well, 17,000 islands in Indonesia, so there's yeah. plenty of scope. Plenty of places to go. Plenty of places to go. Yeah. Mike's aim is to discover what the ancestral species of the Hobbit was and where they came from. One way to increase our knowledge of this is if we could get DNA from any of the fossils. We'd like more hominin remains, more skulls would be good. Okay. From fresh remains, maybe you can get DNA. Uh, we've got colleagues like um, Alan Cooper from the Centre for the Study of Ancient DNA in Adelaide and uh, Sorrento Pabo from the Max Pack Centre in Germany have both tried to extract DNA from the teeth of Hobbit unsuccessfully. It was a couple of years later. The remains had been consolidated with acetone-based glue, they'd been extensively handled, and they'd been stored in the hot humidity of Jakarta for, for that, that length of time. Yeah. We have managed to extract DNA from pig bone, the site back to 8,000 years ago. So if we get fresh Hobbit material, and somebody like Alan Cooper gets there immediately, Okay, the vinyl duct might be able to get DNA, track back and work out what um, hominin DNA may have been like 2 million, 3 million years ago, and also the date, natural split. There are many questions that the Homo floresiensis raises. How do the hobbits fit into our history? How much, if any, interaction did these hobbits have with modern humans? How did hominoids with similarities to Australopithecines wind up in Indonesia? For now, we'll just have to wait for more discoveries. It certainly illustrates we have a lot more to learn about our ancient ancestors and evolution. That was Chris Rayberg and Amy Bullen interviewing Associate Professor Mike Morewood about his team's fascinating discovery of the hobbit fossils in Indonesia. Who's to say? What's impossible will they forget? This world keeps spinning and with each new day I can feel a change in everything And as the surface breaks, reflections fade 
But in some ways they remain the same And as my mind begins to spread its wings There's no stopping curiosity Next up, Irukandji, Stinging Jellyfish. Science with Lachlan Watmore. We've all heard of Chironex flakeri, the sea wasp, or box jellyfish. Box jellies have a well-deserved reputation of possessing one of the most painful stings in the world. Indeed, they possess the most toxic venom in the world and have killed up to 70 people in the last 50 years. However, Chironex isn't the only species of box jelly, and box jellies are badly named because, strictly speaking, they aren't jellyfish. True jellyfish belong to the Cnidarian class Scyphozoa, while box jellies belong to the class Cubozoa, which comprises about 20 or so different species. One of these species, the Irukandji box jelly, gives Chironex a serious run for its money in the painful sting stakes. Jellyfish, box jellyfish, corals, sea anemones, hydroids, blue bottles and their kin are all members of the animal phylum Cnidaria. Cnidarians are so-called because they contain cnidocytes, which are also called nematocysts. These are specialised cells which, in simple terms, fire little darts. If you put your finger into an anemone's mouth, it feels sticky because the little guy is firing adhesive nidocytes to try and capture it. And if you step on a blue bottle, it hurts like hell because those little guys are firing venomous nidocytes to try and kill you, or at the very least make you go away. So nidocytes are what gives cnidarians their very name, and the Urukanji box jelly is no exception. The major difference between the Urukanji and the better-known Chironex is one of size. A sea wasp has a bell about the size of a football and tentacles that can elongate up to three metres. By contrast, the Urukanji box jelly is tiny, no bigger than your average human thumbnail. Like the sea wasp, it has a vaguely cube-shaped bell, about 12mm by 25mm, with a tentacle hanging from each corner of the bell. The tentacles are contractile and vary in length from 5 centimetres to an entire metre. For such a toxic animal, it's surprisingly fragile. It can't even be kept in a regular fish tank for experiments, because if it collided with the side of the tank, it would rupture and die. It was discovered in 1952 by Hugo Flecker and formally described in 1964 by Dr. Jack Barnes, who was investigating the Irukandji syndrome, named after a local people who lived near Cairns. People who had been swimming reported an initial, not very painful jellyfish sting, then up to two hours later, the onset of some horrendous symptoms including severe nausea, muscular pain, anxiety, cardiac arrhythmia, and occasionally pulmonary edema, in which your lungs fill with fluid. Barnes, so the story goes, lay in the water near Cairns where he found a tiny jellyfish which he suspected of causing Irukandji syndrome. Just to make sure, he deliberately stung himself, his son and a passing lifeguard. All three of them ended up in hospital and for his dedication, the new species was named Karukia Barnsi. The small size of the animal explained why the initial sting is barely felt. Only the tips of the nidocyte darts puncture the skin and it has been described as feeling no more painful than a mosquito bite. However, the onset of subsequent symptoms has been described as one of the most painful things a human being can endure. One victim, interviewed for a Discovery Channel show, said that she didn't think it was possible for anyone to endure that level of pain without turning into a vegetable. Others have described wanting to rip their skins off. Even under controlled experimental conditions, with plenty of morphine, the strongest painkiller we've got standing by, volunteers have described dreadful pain. Unlike the sea wasp, whose symptoms usually abate within the hour if it hasn't killed you in the meantime, 
Irukandji symptoms can last up to a day and a half. However, Irukandji stings are not usually fatal. Indeed, it may be argued that no one has actually died from one. In 2002, a man died after being stung by an unknown species of marine stinger believed to be Irukandji. However, the 58-year-old in question had a pre-existing cardiac condition with a prosthetic valve in his heart and the anticoagulant warfarin in his blood. The actual cause of death was a brain hemorrhage due to extremely high blood pressure, so it may be argued that this victim was just a vascular disaster waiting to happen. That said, an Irukandji sting is certainly something to avoid, so here are a few tips. Don't go swimming in tropical Australia between the months of November and May. If you must go swimming, a lycra or thicker wetsuit will protect you, or if you can't afford a wetty, pantyhose will do. I would stress, though, lycra would be preferable. If you do get stung, immediate first aid is, of course, essential. Firstly, immobilise the patient and reassure them. Secondly, douse the stung area with vinegar. Vinegar contains acetic acid, which inhibits any more nitocytes from firing. Unless treated, nitocytes will keep firing even if the tentacle has been severed from the animal, so whatever you do, don't rub the stung area. Vinegar may irritate the skin to an extent, but it is still the best way to prevent any further toxin being injected. That said, vinegar will not relieve the pain, so administer whatever analgesic you've got while waiting for the ambulance to arrive. If the patient goes into cardiac arrest, administer CPR. If you don't know CPR, go out and learn it. Finally, get the patient to hospital ASAP. This isn't something you want to take lightly. That was Lachlan Watmore. Who's to say? I can't do everything, well, I can try. And as I roll along, I begin to find things aren't always just what they seem. I wanna turn the whole thing upside down. I'll find the things they say just can't be found. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Amy Bullen, Chris Rayberg, and Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. I'll share this love I find with everyone. We'll sing and dance to Mother Nature's song. This world keeps spinning and there's no time to waste. Well, it all keeps spinning, spinning round and round and upside down. Who's to say what's impossible and can be found? I don't want this feeling to go away Please don't go away Please don't go away Please don't go away
how it's supposed to be Is this how it's supposed to be